Welcome to the 279th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion of long COVID with Ondine Sherwood, a health advocate with the organization Long COVID SOS, and Vicky Vandertokt of the Zero COVID Alliance. Just a reminder, today is a special COVID calls episode at 5.30 p.m. Korea time and 9.30 a.m. UK time. You can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And just to reiterate that, been getting a lot of really great suggestions for topics. We're scheduling all the way through the summer for COVID calls at this point. So please do send your suggestions. Thanks. As of today, May 19th, 2021, there are 3,404,925 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In the UK, they are now reporting 127,691 deaths from COVID-19. In the Netherlands, 17,473 deaths have now been reported as a result of COVID-19. The number of long-haul COVID cases is unknown. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. I'd like to read a recent article from the UC Davis, University of California Davis Health Newsroom, which maybe shed some light on what I just said there about the number of long-haul COVID cases globally being unknown. The headline is, studies show long-haul COVID-19 afflicts one in four COVID-19 patients, regardless of severity. A patient's age, prior health, or severity of their COVID-19 case does not seem to matter. This appeared in the UC Davis Health Newsroom, March 30th, 2021. More than one in four COVID-19 patients develop long-haul symptoms lasting for months, even if they had mild cases, according to a handful of studies that have emerged recently. Doctors have been estimating one quarter to one third of COVID-19 patients become long haulers, as many patients call themselves. Now, four studies published since February of this year confirm that range. They show that 27% to nearly 33% of patients who had COVID-19 but did not need to be hospitalized later developed some form of long-haul COVID. Those numbers are in line with what we've seen, said Christian Sandrock a UC Davis health professor of pulmonary and critical care medicine. What's good about these studies is they help our patients. We can say, you're not alone. What you're going through is starting to be defined. Another consistent finding is that it does not appear to matter whether non-hospitalized patients had more severe cases of COVID-19, mild cases, or even cases that caused no symptoms at all. Just as consistently, age or prior health whether people were active and fit or had some previous health issues like diabetes or respiratory problems, made only a very small difference, if any, among non-hospitalized patients. Obesity and diabetes stand out as risk factors that can make COVID-19 very serious, 
and require hospitalization. They also increase the risk for those hospitalized patients to develop post-COVID symptoms, said Sandrock, who works with the UC Davis Health post-COVID-19 clinic. But among outpatients, risk factors made very little difference in the study numbers. That's also what we're seeing, he said. Anyone can get long-haul COVID. Even the mildest cases can cause long-haul COVID. Researchers examined the medical records of 1,407 people seen at a range of University of California outpatient clinics, and they found that 27% of those patients suffered from shortness of breath, chest pains, coughs, or abdominal pain two months after being sick with COVID-19, and that nearly a third of those patients had no symptoms during their original infection. A study from the University of Washington published in February of this year found that 32.7% of COVID-19 outpatients developed long-haul symptoms, and 31.3% of hospitalized patients became long-haulers. The difficulty with defining long-haul COVID-19 for patients who are hospitalized, however, is that many patients who spend time in intensive care for almost any reason, heart attack, trauma, flu, and more, often take months to recover from both their illness and some of the ICU procedures that kept them alive. What's so unusual is to see a large group of people who seem to have less severe cases have such long-lasting symptoms, Sandrock said. This is not something we've seen with any other infectious disease. Researchers are also defining the most common symptoms for long haulers. A Stanford healthcare study of non-hospitalized COVID-19 patients published in the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases and a study at New York City's Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Both found that fatigue and respiratory problems are the most common symptoms, followed by a mix of other issues, including what's being called brain fog, body aches, and muscle pain, abdominal issues, and loss of smell and taste. Fatigue and shortness of breath is what we see the most, Sandrock said, but one of the things about post-COVID is that everybody seems to react differently. More studies are coming to learn more about the symptoms and what's causing them, Currently, there are not even any widely embraced theories. The National Institutes of Health put out a proposal recently for a large national study in the United States. We're trying to help answer questions about what is happening with these people and how we can help them more, Sandrock said. In our post-COVID clinic, he said, we've seen 130 to 140 patients now. Although this is still very new, we're all developing some experience and collecting some information that can help us offer our patients more help. With that experience, Sandrock said, doctors now know that some patients with long-haul COVID will make progress, although it's painfully slow. From the pattern we've seen so far, we can say some patients don't get better, but many do, although the pace is glacial, he said. We tell people not to look back day to day or even week to week, but they can see they're improving month to month. Right now, that is at least something, and we hope we will learn more soon. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and I'm delighted to introduce my two guests. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Andine Sherwood is an IT professional with an interest in health. She caught what she assumes was COVID-19 at the end of March 2020, and although the symptoms were relatively mild, she developed long COVID. She thought on many occasions that she had recovered, but the symptoms kept returning, especially after exertion, work, or stress. She's a co-founder of the organization Long COVID SOS. Vicky Vandertokt is the founder of the Zero COVID Alliance, co-founder of the Dutch human rights organization Containment New Netherlands, 
and member of Long COVID Netherlands. She's been advocating for recognition, research, and treatment for Long COVID in the Netherlands since July of 2020, and has run multiple international campaigns focused on this effort, as well as other topics regarding the coronavirus pandemic. Vicky and Andine, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Good morning. Afternoon. Good morning. Thank you so much for having us. I'd like to start the way I usually do, which is just to find out where guests are calling from, what the pandemic situation is looking like there today, maybe what the vaccination availability situation is looking like there today. Uh, Andine, let me start with you on that. Um, well, we're in a good place as regards vaccination, that's for sure. That's one thing that we seem to have got right in the UK. So we have um, a vaccination program that's going very well. I can't give you the exact numbers, but um, I think around about half of, half of adults have had at least one dose. So, um, yeah, I think there were some supply issues last month, but um, it's going pretty well. So that's good. But on, conversely, we have the variant. So the Indian variant, which um, a couple of weeks ago was didn't even seem to be of concern, has now become quite frighteningly um, a high proportion of uh, test results are, are testing for that variant in certain parts of the country, including London. So it's, it's actually predicted to be to, to become the dominant variant. And it's a variant that we know comparatively little about. We, 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 I think the, the belief is that it's something like 40% more transmissible, which is obviously not good for the, for the R number. Um, we don't know if it produces a more severe disease. Um, we think that the vaccines are effective against it, but there's probably not enough data to be sure. So we're in a situation where the country is now opening up. And on Monday, we moved to another stage in the this roadmap to uh, easing lockdown where we can meet indoors and people can go inside and eat in restaurants and go into pubs. Yet at the same time, although we've got a, a high number of proportion of people vaccinated, we still have a lot of people who aren't vaccinated who are susceptible to a new, more transmissible variant. And it's all a bit, in my mind, it's all a bit crazy, actually. And we're being encouraged to go abroad, but discouraged from going abroad, so there's mm. mixed messaging, and um, it's not brilliant. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of, I'm normally a real optimist, but I have to say, when it comes to COVID, uh, experience has taught me to be a little bit pessimistic as to how things pan out. So that's what, it. That sums it up. <laughs> what would I, what would I see if I was on the on the streets there with you today? People wearing masks, uh, <laughs> beginning to congregate outdoors and indoors, but are they masked up? Um, not entirely, no. I would say that people wearing masks outside have always been the exception. Oh, there's a proportion of people with masks on, and when I see them, I'm quite encouraged. But outside people, there's no mandate. There's no mandate to, to wear masks outside. There never has been. Um, and uh, but inside shops, yes, and on public transport, although there are always people who aren't, or you sit on a tube and their the, their mask is sort of hanging around their chin. So, um, but people are taking it seriously, but of course not everybody. And um, everybody's desperate, of course, to get back to to normality. And I, I can't blame people for, for wanting that. But it's, um, you know, from, the, uh, from a long COVID point of view, and most people don't look at it from a long COVID point of view, but from that point of view, it's worrying because yes, younger people, if they get COVID, 
they don't go to hospital in the most part. They don't tend to end up in the morgue, but they do get long COVID. And it's it's uh, such a horrible experience. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. And for young people to get long term illness is is very unpleasant, particularly if they're you know starting out. They're students. They're working. They they want their lives as everybody does. It's uh, so it, it's I, I'm always sounding a bit like the voice of doom. Oh, dear, don't do that. My son wants to go. He's booked to go to a club night in June with 4000 people. But he's been he's a medical student. He's been vaccinated. But nevertheless, you know, I think, oh, God, what are you doing? I'm in Korea and I'm I'm worried about him. Okay, well, (laughs) um, since he's vaccinated, he'd probably be okay. But that worry is still real. And that's part of it, too. Mm -hmm. Vicky, let me ask you the same question where you're calling from and, and what the COVID situation is looking like there. Uh, I'm calling in from the Netherlands. Um, the COVID situation is very much different than in the UK. Our vaccination rollout is very slow. Um, and also, it seems to be that our government is um, not not planning on vaccinating all the people that should get vaccinated early on. Um, so there's been a lot of issues regarding different uh, people with different types of underlying um, illnesses, uh, for which only some are eligible to get the vaccine and some are not. And uh, we've actually done multiple campaigns in the Netherlands to get certain groups um, to to be able to to make these vaccine appointments. Uh, But still with the vaccination rollout going so slow, we are lifting measures. Um, We have all these uh, events now. Uh, So Eurovision is held in the Netherlands with thousands Mm. of people. At the same time, we have still a high amount of cases and, and healthcare workers are basically um, raising the the alarm bells for months on end now, uh, but nobody seems to be listening to it. So it's a a very scary situation uh, because in the Netherlands uh, for a long time, um, really for over a year, um, the the way that our government has been um, communicating about COVID has been very, um, very much focused on not bringing any panic. And it worked very well. Not it, it seems to be that a large portion of the population isn't that frightened of getting COVID. And so with this lifting of measures and some people being vaccinated, uh, I share that same worry as Andine does, um, that specifically now it is the scariest moment um, regarding long COVID, um, specifically because they're lifting measures in schools. Um, restaurants are slowly opening up. And so, yeah, if these people that get COVID now don't end up in those hospitals, I'm I'm afraid we lose all oversight into the amount of people that that get sick, the amount of people that possibly get long COVID, because there's also no monitoring uh, of long COVID patients in the Netherlands. Um, mm. So, yeah, I'll, I'm not looking forward to seeing how the next couple of weeks to months are going here. Well, I'd like to explore some of the different facets of long COVID with you both, including your advocacy. But I I guess it it would be important for listeners and for myself to understand a little bit your own personal uh, pathway with it. Vicki, let me start with you on this. If you wouldn't mind just sharing with us um, your own COVID experience. Um, Yeah, I would love to. Um, So I got sick in the beginning of March. And so I got infected at the end of February last year. Um, and the strange thing about that is that I actually, um, while 
trying to figure out when exactly I got infected. That was before the first patient was confirmed. And also before there was real uh, communication from our government about this disease. So it was a very strange time. I was already sick while it was being said that this was just a flu. So it was a very, very strange experience for me to be so sick um, and have a lot of people around me not know what this disease is about. Also thinking that it wouldn't hurt, um, that it wouldn't actually affect younger people like me. I was only 28 at the time. Um, and for me, the first couple of weeks, um, I got all the, all the, all the symptoms that we now know about. So the fever, um, I had pneumonia, but I also got a rash. Um, and that rash, um, wasn't even known by our CDC here in the Netherlands. Um, so it was very surreal. Uh, I've always been interested in, in science. And so I've been reading about COVID since Wuhan, basically. Um, and so it got to a situation where I had to inform my GP about certain symptoms instead of the other way around and me actually like having to send them particular studies to show like, okay, so this is what is going on. Please read up on this. Um, very, very odd situation to, to be in. For me, the initial disease, it lasted around two to three months instead of what you read, um, most often, it's like two to three weeks. Um, and so in the first couple of weeks, uh, it was basically, you hear a lot about specific uh, symptoms, but I, I fear that the one thing that people forget about is that it's not one symptom, it's the multitude of symptoms. And that for me made for a situation where I wasn't able to walk, I wasn't able to sit, I wasn't able to actually lay down. Um, and it was it was awful and also awful to be in that situation to not being able to convey to the people around me how bad that was. And I feel like because of that um, communication, also because nothing changed over time for a long time here in the Netherlands. Um, that that has been one of the most difficult things for people specifically within my within my age range that. That got so sick. Yeah, that's that's the initial disease. Uh, of course, after after all of that, after those first couple of months, it turned out I wasn't getting any better. Um, but that was a whole um, a whole new set of symptoms, a whole new um, phase of COVID to deal with, which was entirely different from that initial disease. Um, Yeah, honestly, I, I could go on and on. It's been such a well, such a roller coaster ride. Yeah, I thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry you've been living with that, and I think we'll come back and talk a little bit more about different aspects of what you what you shared there. I'm particularly struck by this experience, which must have been completely uncanny to have to go to your doctor with the information that you'd had to find on your own about long-haul COVID. I mean, that's not the way any of us would like to have to interact with our physicians. That's uh, an impressive point. Yeah, it, it really was. Um, and, and just to give a little bit of, a, of a extra information with that, of course, you, you, you weren't able to actually go by the GP office. And so a, a large part of uh, actually diagnosing what was going on with me um, all happened over WhatsApp. Uh, which is that in itself is is so odd, like still thinking back of that, 
it's it's horrifying to to think of to how many people were in that exact same situation and also still are that uh, that shouldn't be the case that's uh, one of the reasons why our advocacy work and also preventing uh, covid is so important in my opinion on Andine, let me bring you in with the same question i asked vicky if you wouldn't mind sharing your own covid experience yeah well my experience was not nearly as dramatic as vicky's um i didn't even know if i had, well i knew in my gut that i had covid because of the timing, because of the strange, sudden onset of symptoms. But of course, at the time, it was all about the fever and the cough. I don't know if I had an initial fever because it, it, it sort of came over me quite late one evening before I was about to go to bed. I suddenly got this, this, this sudden exhaustion. It just almost knocked me, knocked me over, accompanied by chills, very dry mouth, pounding heart. And I thought, well, I, I think I need to go to bed. So I didn't, I didn't isolate myself. I, I didn't take my temperature. And of course, along with this feeling of, of, there was a feeling of fear that I have this and that there's a chance that in 10 days I might be in ICU because that's all we were hearing about. <clears throat> I was also furious with myself for having allowed it to happen when I was being careful. But clearly it had happened somewhere and I think it happened in a crowded shop. Uh, a week or so beforehand um, and then I thought well maybe I'm just anxious maybe this is anxiety you know pounding heart dry mouth the sort of shivers uh, um, maybe it's nothing and I got into bed and I just I, I woke up in the night and I felt that I was feverish but I, I didn't you know I, I didn't test myself but the strange thing about my experience is that I kept feeling better so the following morning I thought well, I don't feel so bad and I got up and I did stuff and then around about uh, late afternoon, I started feeling terrible again, and so I'd end up having to go to bed. And this this pattern continued um, almost daily. And I had read other. I was, of course, was reading voraciously, the same as Vicky. I was trying to inform myself about this, and it's not terribly healthy to be reading the constant rolling news about hospitalizations and deaths. But I'm I was reading about people's experiences, and I could see that this 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 concept of of being feeling okay at one minute and, and terrible the next was not uncommon. Um, <clears throat> after about five days of this, and meantime, I hadn't been coughing. I hadn't lost my sense of, of taste of smell. About five days, I thought, I don't feel so bad. And my partner suggested that he's, he said he's going for a bike ride. And I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll jump on my bike and I'll, I'll just do a 20 minutes just to get out. And I got on the bike and we did this great ride around London, which was, of course, in lockdown, completely empty. And I, and I felt fine. Um, two hours come, came back and then I was floored, completely floored. And the next morning I had got up to do something and I just I remember I was sitting on the chair over there and I was trying to thread some beads or something. And I thought, mm -hmm. I, I can't do this. I have to go to bed. And this this pattern continued. And I remember the following week thinking, well, this is a bit odd. You know, I'm not I haven't got worse, but I don't seem to have got better. And by then I was coughing. But I think it was more of a, a sort of asthmatic um, immune reaction rather than the COVID cough. And it was at that point that I rang the GP. And because I was coughing, they took me seriously. I knew I, I'm fairly sure if I'd called without the cough, they would have said, you know, yeah, it's not COVID. Um, and they asked me to do things like um, count my breaths, which of course was, was all wrong because I was conscious of how many breaths I was sure. breathing a minute. I got that wrong. And 
And the, I never rang 111, although I nearly did at one point. But I knew, I had a feeling I wasn't going to get any any advice other than just wait it out. And it was at that point that it, it seemed clear to me that the, all the, well, we didn't know how many, but there were literally millions of people probably by then at home with COVID, some of whom were having really nasty symptoms. And we weren't being, um, no one was really very interested in, in us. And so people were like Vicky, or worse, who were who would normally have been admitted to hospital but couldn't be because there wasn't the space and were feeling like they were literally dying, were just being left maybe with a phone call to 111 or a, a chat with their GP if they were lucky. And no one was really looking at the trajectory of our experience. So, so there was a lot of interest. I mean, naturally, people who are going into hospital need oxygen. You know, they're the ones I suppose you do need to focus on. And certainly the deaths, you can't ignore this. Um, you need to prevent them. But but there were all these hordes of people suffering at home. And um, I kept thinking I was better. So uh, two weeks in, maybe I thought, well, it's gone. And I decided that, OK, a day of feeling better isn't enough. I'll wait three days. And once I've been feeling better for three days, mm-hmm. then that's it. I'm done. I can go running again, which is what I did, which, of course, was a big mistake. So well, whenever I felt better, I'd get back to normal. I'd be very keen to do my normal stuff went running and then I'd have a massive crash and I'd be really fed up and I'd have, what is this you know who's talking about this and uh, I eventually found this article in the New York Times written by Fiona Lowenstein who started the body politic sport group and mm. it and I realized that this was happening that people weren't getting better and I and I, I joined the support group and then I didn't join for a while because I thought I was better but a week or so later I was in there and it was very well, it, not so much reassuring, but I suppose it was reassuring that I wasn't the only one who couldn't shake this off. And that, in fact, there were people in this support group who were really in trouble and not getting anywhere in terms of care or being believed. And that's how it all started, really. And uh, basically, I'm still I'm almost better, but I don't like to say that because I had a relapse a couple of weeks ago, which was you know, it wasn't enough to sort of put me back to bed. But I still get this sort of brain fog and I get hits of fatigue, which I didn't used to. I used to have a lot of energy. Um, I can do more now. It's as if, you know, your phone battery is really running down. You ought to get a new one. Mm-hmm. It feels like that, that it's, I don't have, um, you know, it runs down quickly. And then sometimes it just dies. Well, it, it just goes and you just have to yeah. do nothing for a while. So. Um, that's how it feels for me. And when I get that feeling, I, I tend is what I had one GP who was quite helpful in, in explaining that some of my symptoms were probably due to a sort of uh, acid reflux, a silent reflux, really, because you're not aware you have it. But burning throat, the cough that I would get intermittently and the chestiness um, is, is, is due to a gastrointestinal manifestation of this uh, of long covid and what happens is when when the fatigue comes there whatever is going on um to cause the fatigue this immune response or autoimmune response is triggering the gut reaction as well so you get this a whole load of symptoms all at once and the other thing i have are these very strange uh, covid toes which didn't start until about nine ten months in and that kind of fluctuates but they can look really really strange so there's a vascular element as well
Just reminding everyone that you're listening to COVID calls and talking to Ondine Sherwood and Vicky Vandertokt today about long haul COVID. And um, we've just heard from both of you about your own experiences uh, with long COVID. And I want to just you know, sort of shift the conversation a little bit now. You both kind of hinted at this a little bit already, but how you started to find other people so that you were not suffering alone. Uh, both of you sort of shifted your um, focus into, in addition to, I'm sure, the many other things you're doing in your lives, uh, into some form of advocacy and support. You mentioned the Body Politics Support Group there on Dean. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that and then also how Long COVID SOS was formed. Uh, yeah, well, the support group um, is, it's on the, uh, the Slack platform, so it's not on Facebook. So um, it's, a, it's a digital platform, which I think hitherto has been mainly used for business. And um, it was great. It was great. They, there, there are many different channels. So there's a UK channel. It's, a, it's very um, US based, I suppose. Most, I guess most of the people on it are probably in the US, but there's a, a, thousands from the UK as well. And we have a UK channel. And we, I, first of all, when I joined, I was mainly reading stuff, listening to people, and then I started talking to people. And it, as I said before, it struck me how young the people were who were, were there, how young they were, how sick they were, and, and how frustrated they were because they couldn't get any help, uh, desperate in some cases. And I began to think, this is ridiculous. You know, nobody's talking about this. There were a few things creeping into the press. There was no acknowledgement. And there was certainly nothing in public messaging from the government that this is another aspect that we need to be careful of and that another reason to avoid clashing this disease. And I remember I put out a post and said, I think we need to agitate. You know, I felt we just have to do something. And then um, Sandra Edwards, who's one of the other co-founders of Long COVID SOS, posted that really we should we should march on parliament we've got to do something and a few of us joined in this conversation and um about five of us started talking about it seriously and we we realized that we, we marching on parliament for for so many reasons was just not going to happen because many of people were unable to march we thought about a, a wheelchair a wheelchair protest we thought about a bus but it was locked down and we thought that we might get some negative press because there'd be people gathering um one person on the support group had sent a, a message in a bottle to the prime minister and he'd done this through some online organization which will do that it's probably designed to send it to your <laughs> someone you're in love with or something but he sent it to to boris johnson saying we're we're abandoned we're marooned Wow. We can't get any help. We need we need help, and uh, we we took that idea as a, a theme for our film, um, message in a bottle, um, in order to to highlight the fact that people were were felt abandoned, and so we decided to put, push ahead with a film, um, and there happened to be a great filmmaker, um, Caroline Eccles, who was also in the support group, and she and her partner are filmmakers, and they. We, we gathered photographs of people holding up messages explaining how what their what their experience was, how many days. I mean, now you look at the film, 90 days, it seems, well, you know, we're all like a year in now. But um, right. they put together a fantastic film. And at the same time, we uh, wrote a, an open letter, which was sent to 
all the uh, those in in the cabinet, health policy makers, and copy to all the MPs. Um, and we hoped to get a little bit more press coverage, but we were we were sort of a, a sort of minority grassroots movement at the time. But we did get into a couple of publications at when when we launched the film and the letter. Um, and the letter we had some messages of support from several opposition MPs. Um, we didn't hear back from government, but we did um, eventually that letter prompted a response from um, uh, Professor Powers from the NHS. And so that led to um, our conversation with the NHS. I think I'm going to take this opportunity since you were talking about the, the film and um, it's short enough for us to show it here so people can actually get a sense of what you were you were doing with that. So I'm going to go ahead and show this. It's a couple of minutes and then Vicky, we're going to turn to you and hear about the Zero COVID Alliance. Let me go ahead and play this if I can. We're all members of a club no one wanted to join. Different backgrounds, ages, experiences. Thousands and thousands of us have been struggling for weeks and months with ongoing symptoms of COVID-19. These are some common symptoms, but there are many more. Some of us have been ill throughout, with others having relapses. We're still very ill. We're feeling pressure to return to work to care for families and get back to normal when we still feel anything but. No one seems to be able to answer our questions or give reassurance. Will we ever get better? Will there be long-term repercussions for our physical and mental health? Is this post-viral fatigue or are we still infectious? Will I be able to do the things that make me happy again? Can we hug our loved ones or will we make them sick? Is this damage irreversible? Am I going to die? We just don't know. We're sending out an SOS. Each of us has our own journey, but lots of us are feeling abandoned, dismissed, brushed off, ignored and given conflicting advice. It can be hard for those around us to understand how ill we are. It's confusing and scary. Our numbers are growing and we need to be taken seriously. We need rehab, research and recognition. We need to be believed, helped, treated with compassion and supported by those around us. Please hear our SOS. Nothing's changed, really. I wonder if you could share with us the reaction that you've had to the film. Um, it's been very, very widely shared. We've translated it into um, five or six other languages. And I think that film really captures the experience so well. And it's still so relevant because so many of those questions have still not been answered. We, we, we are closer, we there is research, there is much more recognition, but, but those questions still still apply. And there are people who are, who are just entering into this sort of long haul phase who are 
still as confused and feel as as abandoned in a way. So it's it's still very very relevant. There's a couple of the questions there that really hit to me hit really hard, and one of them is about whether or not you should be able to interact with your family. It says, "Can I hug my family?" And mm-hmm. so. Um, that's a question that exists in that gray area between sickness and health and, and, and that sort of underlines the care that people have tried to take throughout this pandemic. Most people have tried to take by wearing the mask, by the various different things they do to protect strangers, not to mention their family. The, the other thing is a question that um, you pointed to earlier, which is whether or not people with long haul symptoms can be reinfected and end up in the hospital. So is long haul COVID and previous infection some form of immunity that's playing out over a long period of time, or is it not related at all? And the lack of knowledge about that leads to the kind of anxiety and stresses. I don't explain your own situation to you. I don't have to do that. But I think those are two parts of the film that I found really powerful as I watched, mm-hmm. and I've watched it several times now. Yes, I think um, the, the infectiousness is probably... Um, it's, it, it's probably not not something that people should worry about because I don't think um, many people with long COVID are still um, shedding virus. But we don't know whether they may have reservoirs of virus somewhere, which is causing which are causing the symptoms. Um, and I know that pe- that some people do isolate themselves there for weeks or months, and I, I found that quite troubling because it's so bad for your mental health to literally be isolated. Um, but I can understand the fear. And of course, as far as reinfection goes, um, personally, I felt there were maybe some protection for a while, but then I had an antibody test and it was that was nine months in and not uncommonly that was negative. So of course, people with long COVID really don't want to get infected again. Nobody wants to go through that. We do know people who claim to have been reinfected. I mean, it, they're only really recorded if you've had two PCR tests, both positive, um, both if possible, uh, sequence so that to show that there's a different a different um, genetic uh, sequence to the uh, two different tests to show that you're not still harboring the same virus. But uh, that we have seen reports of people in the support group who've been reinfected. Um, fortunately, most of them don't get. Uh, I, we don't, I don't know anyone who got reinfected really badly, um, but they do sometimes get a resurgence of their long COVID symptoms. And, you know, it's something that nobody who's been sick for months really wants to contemplate. Vicky, let me bring you in now. Um, we've heard about the uh, long COVID SOS efforts that Andine's been part of there in the UK. Tell us about your advocacy work with the Zero COVID Alliance. Uh, yeah, so in, in the Netherlands, because it, it didn't start with the Zero COVID Alliance, it all started with containment new for me. Um, so long COVID wasn't discussed in the Netherlands for a very long time. Um, and actually, I I think I may be one of the first people in the Netherlands who actually spoke up about having any long-term symptoms. Um, so there are look, there are a couple of um, activist groups in the Netherlands that have formed over the course of the pandemic, specifically in the first couple of months. Uh, one of them being Containment New, but also the Red Team NL. And there are uh, different uh, public health experts within that team. Um, and for me, at one point, I think it was in the beginning of July, I just 
I actually, I never, I never use Twitter, but for this, I was like, okay, I really need to speak up. I need to get connected to people that, that can give me some clarity about what's, what's going on here, because I really felt I was the only one. Um, and so I reached out to, to different healthcare organizations. I put this long story on, on Twitter, like, this is what's going on with me. I'm only 28. Like, can someone please explain to me if this is normal, if this is happening more often? And through that, I, I got connected to multiple people from that red team. Um, and that's where it all started. That was actually, um, I had a phone call with one of the members there. And that was that was the first time I had a conversation. Um, and someone acknowledged that this was actually quite normal for post-viral disease. Not that it was normal with other diseases in this severity, but it was kind of that acknowledgement that wasn't there at all within my country. Um, and that's how it all started. That um, person as a, an epidemiologist has worked with different uh, zoonotic diseases in the Netherlands, and he actually worked for um, to advocate for proper treatment of Q fever patients. And so he's seen the same thing. So, and, and he actually mentioned to me, like, it's been a really difficult battle to, to get that public, pu publicly discussed back then. Um, and so that to me really showed that we were in for, for quite a battle ourselves. And, and that kind of triggered me to, to take that next step to become that advocate. So based on that, I reached out to uh, Containment New, which were uh, a group that formed really in March uh, of 2020. Uh, they formed as um, a, a human rights organization speaking out about the chosen strategy. Um, because in the Netherlands, uh, the, our government was very upfront. They were like, we're going to go for herd immunity. Everyone should get it. Specifically, we're going to let this virus run through the schools uh, because it won't affect children at all, won't affect any young people. And so, yeah, of course, a lot of people were like, this is, this is not okay. Like, we've seen, we've seen the videos from Wuhan. We've heard the stories. We've read the articles. And so they already formed and they put, this whole website together with everything you need to know to prevent COVID, everything you need to know about the severity of it, both an initial disease and possibly also for long-term. And I saw great advocates in them, but I also saw that they didn't know, they didn't know anything about possible long-term effects. Like they didn't have contact with any patients. They didn't know, like they didn't have any family members that, that got it. So I felt like, Having someone like me on that team, that was exactly what was missing. And they could actually reach a lot more people and have a lot, have a bigger impact if they would have me on their team. So I just basically reached out to him like, you really need, you really need me on your team. You really need to speak mm -hmm. up for patients. You need to advocate for, for proper treatment because if we don't all work together, we won't get it. Also based on what the history regarding viral diseases in the Netherlands has been. And so we teamed up and in the beginning um, we were very um, positive that we could make that change here, that we could convince people to take COVID more seriously, specifically more seriously than our government was taking it. Um, but we're only a small country. <laughs> 
uh, and we're also um, a, a neoliberals uh, country, and so it's it's been harder than we initially expected. And also the battle for long COVID recognition has taken a lot longer than in some other countries. Um, so just to, uh, sorry, I, I have to say I'm uh, also a little babbling. That's the long COVID here. Um, but I joined Containment New. Uh, we made this plan. Like we really have to let patients share their experiences uh, because there wasn't anything, there wasn't anything else. There wasn't any support group in the Netherlands, like people didn't know what to do if they had any of these long-term symptoms. Um, and so we decided to set up this separate website, which is uh, covidstories.containmentnew.nl. Uh, and we got some long haulers together. We um, had interviews with them, shared their stories. And that was really the start of people starting to think about and then actually, yeah, see, seeing these stories for the first time. Um, and then I think it took about a month for me to actually find the first support group. Mm. Um, but it was a support group that was only for support. Like still, it didn't give any of the answers that we were looking for. Right. And for that, that still took months. And actually me partnering up with different people who had these same questions. Um, and that eventually turned into the Long COVID Netherlands group. But you have to know, I mean, you ask about Zero COVID Alliance and also Long COVID Advocacy. For me, there are two separate things um, where advocating through Containment New or advocating for a different strategy, a strategy that protects everyone. But in terms of Long COVID, these patients, I myself, I need something different. We need that recognition. Mm. We need that treatment. We need that research. And they go hand in hand, but not necessarily all the time. And so before containment new, we talked about long COVID. We talked about uh, having a change in strategy. Um, I'm really happy the long COVID um, Netherlands group came from that, from those ideas. But in terms of the zero COVID alliance, that is completely different because that is based on how in the Netherlands and in the UK and in Sweden, we had that herd immunity strategy. And we were in this position that... We saw our neighboring countries make very different choices uh, regarding this disease. So in Germany, they've always been a lot stricter, for example, mm -hmm. than we were here. And also, like, there's been um, really questionable choices surrounding masks, for example, and also around PCR testing. Um, and in the Netherlands, like, even even as a country, if you if you look at, for example, these uh, reports by the ECDC, they don't even show the Netherlands because we're that tiny. When you look at the worldwide cases that are being reported, the Netherlands is not on the map. And so we needed to make sure that the other countries around us actually knew what was going on inside of the Netherlands. And that's what we took on. So we partnered up with the UK. We partnered up with Sweden because they were in that exact same situation, not in terms of size, but they were in terms of chosen strategy. We're like, well, if we cannot actually start that debate within our own countries, we'll just partner up and try to do it internationally. So that's how the Zero COVID alliance starts. Um, we started with only four groups um, without any ideas about how, yeah, what it will turn into, what, what we could do. Um, and that was only back in October. 
And it turned out that uh, bit by bit, there were other countries starting to speak up, starting to see how what their governments were doing to to protect their population wasn't enough. And so bit by bit, we got more partners. Um, now we're at this point where we're with uh, 39 partners in, in 20 different countries, and we're all advocating, not necessarily all for uh, a change in strategy, um, because there's different groups involved that focus on different topics. So we have long COVID groups, we have zero COVID groups. There's also school groups that focus on just getting the proper um, measures implemented in school. So proper ventilation, masking, testing, um, and then there's also some groups that focus specifically on vaccine equity. So we really cover a lot of different topics. Uh, and that's also how we portray the, the organization that is that we support all COVID efforts around the world, whichever your, where, wherever your focus lies. Um, so it's, it's been interesting. It's been a lot, but it, it has been interesting. Well, I appreciate you going into that detail and so patiently with it because it's it's quite a journey you're describing there to go it from is. a sort of in, in individual consciousness to then sort of trying to find support, then also form an organization that can critique a government strategy and long COVID support as well. Uh, I. I should just remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. We're talking to Vicky Vandertokt and Ondine Sherwood today about long haul COVID. Um, let me, um, Ondine, let me bring you back in if I can on this question. And then Vicky, it's the same question for you. So what are some of the very specific things that you think right now that, that your organization is putting before government, before the National Health Service or whoever you're, you're pitching it at? Very specific things that you're looking for. Um, well, I suppose there are several things, but one of them is, is some kind of action for people now, because there are many, many, many hundreds of thousands of people who've been sick for a long time and still not getting the right treatment or any treatment. That's partially because there really isn't any treatment for long COVID per se. There is no magic bullet. There's no cure. A part, that's partly because it's such a heterogeneous condition. People have such a wide range of symptoms. The uh, COVID is a whole body disease and it can affect everything in your, it can affect your, your nervous system, your vascular system, it can affect any, any organ, so it seems. And so people have a huge wide range of symptoms, which makes it very difficult to um, come up with treatment strategies. So we have now a network of of long. Well, we call we we ask for long COVID multidisciplinary clinics. They are now termed assessment services, and that really says it all because people are assessed. They're not necessarily treated, and so what's happening is some people are treated in in if there are specific symptoms that can be alleviated. Many people are then referred on out of the clinics to specialists with you know waiting times people are waiting long periods before they can get into the clinic so inevitable waiting lists because there are far too many people to 
cater for the not enough clinics there's not enough staff the nhs don't have enough funding and haven't had enough funding for at least the last 10 years and so we're in a situation where we need we need treatment so one of the things that we campaigned for earlier this year was for um research to help people with long COVID now, not, not in two years' time. There was a big funding call at the end of last year, and the projects that were funded tended to be um, looking at, at the what is the natural history of long COVID, how many people is it affecting, how does it affect them. So informing on long COVID, which is important, it's an epidemiological um, aspect which we can't ignore, but it wasn't really going to help anybody anytime soon. And so we, we um, asked government, um, in fact, I managed to ask, Matt Hancock directly because we happen to be in a meeting together for more funding, another funding call. And can we please have some um, research on treatments? There's got to be something. And we knew anecdotally that people, some people were improving on certain um, medicines, possibly certain um, supplements seemed to help people. But there was no there was no data. There was no proper. There were no pr studies to find out whether these things were really working. Um, certain um, of the long COVID clinics were having also were finding that that certain phenotypes of people with long COVID were responding to, for instance, antihistamines or colchicine mm. or so on. But they 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 were crying out for a trial. They wanted to send their patients into a clinical trial, and there weren't any. So we managed um, to shift that a little. We've now had another funding call, and one of the um, asks was for research into into therapeutics and into diagnostics as well because the other problem that, that exists is that people aren't getting diagnosed because they're, they're not the right the right tests are not being used or rather the wrong tests are being used people are, mm. uh, get a chest x-ray and told there's nothing wrong with their lungs they may get ct a regular ct and then there's nothing to be seen but they're right. still having ongoing problems and it's only with certain types of um scanning that you can find these um microplots for instance and so we, the, the the diagnostics need to be sorted out so that people aren't continuously um being sent away and and sent for counseling or fatigue um fatigue rehab when they've actually got organ damage so we, we know that mri is better at finding the damage Having said that, do we know how to cure the damage or is it just a matter of time? We don't know. Um, so this research is really badly needed and uh, we're now waiting for the outcome. We know a lot of people have put in bids. We're involved in some of them as um, patient, um, patient representatives. And I think the results probably won't be announced until um, sometime towards the end of June. So that's uh, one of the things we've been um asking for the other thing is um why why are the government still ignoring long covid it, not entirely ignoring it they'll say oh yes it's terrible and it's something that we really care about but it's not coming out in public messaging it, mm. it's it's still there as a sort of afterthought really in newspaper articles oh and people can get long covid so at least that's starting which is better than it was um, but there's no, um, there's certainly no daily reporting. When we get the daily figures of how many people are in hospital and how many people have, have died, there's no mention of how many people have long COVID, by the way. Because, of course, we don't have rolling figures. We can't count them physically. The, the numbers we have so far from the ONS are based on the COVID um, and a wide survey of about 100,000 people. So they're getting these figures by extrapolating um, 
numbers from that survey. So we're not counting people every day. And of course, it's probably totally impractical to do that. But nevertheless, it is a, such a it's, it's like the third aspect of COVID. We can't ignore right. it. And yet it's still being ignored. Such an important point to make, too, that these data visualizations and even I do it every day on COVID calls. You read these numbers um, there. They have a lot of power because yes. they can be communicated seemingly objectively very quickly. And they're leaving so much out. I, there's one thing I just wanted to, Vicky, I'll bring you in just one second, just to follow up quickly. Um, is referral for mental health services something that's pretty common then for people who present with long COVID symptoms and go to a doctor? Well, certainly in the early days, uh, many people were told it was anxiety and that was driving their symptoms. And these are people who <laughs> were really quite very sick. So that is um, something that is still happening to some extent because the, because doctors, uh, if they can't find evidence, in other words, the diagnostics aren't producing something which they can, which they can hang on to, then they then they have to find some reason to explain the symptoms. Many doctors don't like to say we just don't know. And so uh, uh, right. some of the symptoms could could be similar to, to anxiety related, uh, you know, palpitations, um, shortness of breath, maybe fatigue can be down to anxiety. So that still happens. I think the issue with mental health is that it is important to consider mental health because we know that um, the COVID can produce um, neurological symptoms. Right. which could manifest uh, as mental health issues. But what, what's really happening is people's experience of being sick for so long, of being denied care, and of being told it's anxiety is actually a trauma which can affect mental health. It's and I, I, think it's, I think it is acknowledged that the mental health services need to be fully integrated into um, care, care for physical symptoms. But it's, it's always a worry in the community that if you start involving mental health services, people will just get pushed into that into that department right. and that their physical symptoms won't be investigated properly. And I suspect that is probably ongoing. So it's, a, it's a very tight line to walk. I don't think we should ignore the mental health manifestations and people do need help with, with PTSD. Um, but that needs to be fully integrated with um, with proper diagnosis and treatment for the physical manifestations of what is basically a very unpleasant infectious disease. That, that, that tightrope was the exact metaphor that you said it, that I was thinking of that, that forcing someone to have to make that choice. Uh, am, am, I, am I sick with something that can be diagnosed or do I have mental health? Um, you know, something driving this anxiety or some mm. mental health symptoms or neurological symptoms. And of course, the answer probably for many people is yes. It's, it's not a choice among those. It's complex um, yeah. interaction among those things. Um, yes. And, I mean, there's no doubt that there's a big interplay between them all. But, um, you, know, you know, people have found that things like meditation have been helpful with the stress of all this, but it, but it's probably not going to it's certainly not going to solve your your it's not going to solve your problems if you have yeah. if you have organ damage or residual right. um, damage from COVID, but it might help you cope with it. Exactly. So Vic, you know it's it's a difficult one, really. Vicky, let me just to give you a chance to comment on anything we've been talking about there. I mean, the, my initial question was about you know specific points you're advocating for, but we've raised a number of of key issues there. Um, anything you'd like to comment on? Yeah, regarding the, the mental health aspect. Um, I mean, 
specifically in the beginning, as Andine mentioned as well, um, this was really proposed as the the cause or the or also the result of COVID. Um, and I, it, it's been so harmful. And uh, I have to uh, sadly admit that here in the Netherlands, there's also healthcare organizations who have jumped on the opportunity to make it into a mental health issue. Uh, so, for example, we have this uh, magazine that comes out, Medical Contact, it's called, and they put long COVID on the cover of their Hypes edition there. And that just, it it went viral. Um, all the patients jumped on that, like, how how could you do such a thing? Like, we are advocating for, for getting proper treatment, and you're making it that much harder for us. Um, so that has been so difficult to even have those organizations that are supposed to have the patient's best interests at heart, that they would do something like that. And in terms of uh, in the Netherlands, what we are specifically focusing on, it's just one of the focuses, but an important one, uh, which is that employers are really pushing long COVID patients to get back to work, even, even when they're not fully recovered or even recover to that point that they should go back to work just yet. Um, and it has all these implications. I mean, you know that overexertion could actually worsen the symptoms. And so having your employer push you day in, day out to go over your own limits, it can have such huge uh, consequences. And there's been this great expose last week uh, that I've worked on as well um, on Pointer, uh, on our public uh, broadcasting channel. Um, and it was just specifically about this topic as well. Um, and they went into how there's just too little knowledge of the disease, um, specifically with employers. And therefore, they do not understand what their employees are going through. They do not know how to support them um, and how long these these people can stay sick. Um, so I feel that there's a real role there for public health communication that we've been missing, we've been ignoring as a country, or really not just as a country, but worldwide. There needs to be more knowledge about this disease um, for mm -hmm. all types of different sectors so that patients get heard, employ uh, employers know what to do, doctors know what to do, um, I feel like we've been um, we've been missing that opportunity. So that's that's why we do the work that we do. Are you getting any special um, advice in terms of vaccination? In terms of you know public health messaging about whether or not long call COVID sufferers need to have any special consideration about type of vaccination or whether they should have any hesitancy at all. Um, well, interestingly, we uh, just published the results of a survey on um, over 800 people who'd been vaccinated with long COVID. And um, this, of course, is not public health advice, but we certainly found that, that um, some vaccines were actually helping people with their symptoms. Um, not everybody improves, but um, there was a, a, a fear amongst people with long COVID that, that having the vaccine was going to trigger a massive relapse and make them worse. Uh, some people do seem to suffer afterwards, but we found that the majority are um, find they're getting some benefit from being vaccinated, which is great because we all need to be vaccinated. Um, and some people are really finding their symptoms are, are quite well alleviated, certainly um, noticeably better. 
We don't know how long it lasts. Um, there have been concern that people with long COVID should have been called for vaccination sooner because because of the risk of getting reinfected, having been sick for so long. Um, but we were never part of the priority groups. So people are getting vaccinated as and when their their age group is called or depending if they have any any um, chronic conditions. Um, but yes, the, the vaccination issue is quite interesting. Um, certainly, I don't think that, um, I, I don't suppose our survey will make it into, into uh, government policy, but uh, hopefully a clinical trial will follow to find out whether it actually can, the vaccine can be used to, uh, as some form of treatment, maybe. It's, it's hard to say at the moment, but certainly the results are very encouraging. Um, going back to employment, we have a page on our website, um, which is um, full of advice for people having employment problems. Oh, yeah. And that's the yes, that's the Guardian article about our study, which has oh. called. There's been a lot of stuff in the press about um, vaccines and long COVID, anecdotal mainly. There is a study starting in uh, the United States. Um I was just putting this Guardian piece up here because it's it's good to see you're seeing some news uptake of this yes. at least. Yes, I mean the Guardian were very interested in it. We've got a paper which um, there, there's an academic paper which is which is part of the um, results of our survey. Which we're just waiting for the um, for the link for that one. That should be published very soon, hopefully today. And um, on our website. We've got, um, I'll, I'll give you the link on our web website to the blog, which um, has the information um, about this, which you can have a look at. Great. I'll bring that up. So yeah. well, we're, we should move towards conclusion here. Um, and to start to wrap up, I just want to give you each an opportunity. If there's something we didn't touch on or you wanted to say a little bit more about, please feel free. And I guess I'd like to hear also sort of what you see in the near-term future in terms of advocacy. And Vicky, let me start with you on this. Well, that's a difficult question. Um, I mean, what, what we specifically, Andine and I, see in the near future is that, of course, we will continue doing the research into long COVID because it, it is so necessary to, to keep doing this. Uh, I mean, both of us have been advocating for proper research within our own countries, uh, but it's a slow process to work with governments and so it's it's really nice to have that opportunity to do that ourselves um, to not have to wait for that um, because for example this survey and these results um, if we would have waited for government to do something like that it, it, it may have taken another half year to even get this this information um, so that'll continue um, in terms of recognition um, we still have a lot to do um, and, and educating as well. I mean, in the Netherlands, um, much different than the UK, it's only um, recognized for is it three months uh, now. Um, but we're one of the lucky few countries that actually have that official recognition by the government. Um, and as the Zero COVID Alliance, we, were, we work worldwide. And so we also work with groups in countries where there isn't that official recognition just yet. So it's on the one hand, it's very encouraging that now bit by bit countries are are officially coming out with statements um, about long COVID, but this, there's still a lot of work to do in other countries. So we can use those messages, those articles, that those studies for um, um, those other countries, but it's um, 
they all move in different phases. They're they're all in a different phase in this this whole path, this uh, battle almost. Uh, so there's there's a lot more to do, um, and our work doesn't stop when we we've, we've gotten when we've gotten those those three things in place within our countries. I mean, we will go on until we've actually been able to support and help get that get that done in all our partners' countries. Yeah, I mean, we, we actually, I, I, I didn't mention that the WHO reached out to us after seeing our film, and we've been working alongside them as well to help inform their long COVID uh, policies. So uh, we had a meeting with them back in August, um, which was attended by Dr. Tedros, and uh, we had uh, we organised presentations from people from different countries, and they are working on long COVID. And of course, they are one way of reaching out to countries who really don't recognise long COVID at all. And certainly, until recently, there are some very major countries where people were simply being sent to psychiatric departments if they had these symptoms. And so, it's really, really important that um, lower and middle income countries are given help, really. To, to help people with long COVID. I, I, I have great concerns about India when you look at the number of people who've had COVID now and um, they're going to have a legacy of, of, of ill health and it's frightening really. So the, these, um, this information needs to be spread worldwide so that people, because there are people really suffering and getting you know, no help and we don't even know the extent of it. So we're working with the WHO to gather people together from different countries, represent representatives from all their regions, um, in order to to help to help um, recognition worldwide, to get the research out there, and 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 to help get treatments not just for us but for everybody. So we all, you know, worldwide, it's just like the vaccine. We can't just vaccinate our countries or Western countries, right. everyone's got to get vaccinated in order to keep everybody safe and everybody with long COVID needs help, no matter which country they're living in. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch my next COVID Calls mm -hmm. episode at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, May 19th. And I'll be talking with Rebecca Edelman about her project, The Coronavirus Lost and Found Archive. Please do join me for that. And I just want to thank my guests today for a lot of knowledge. Um, Undine Sherwood and Vicki Vandertoek, thanks for sharing your own personal stories, your stories of advocacy, and then also your sort of depth of understanding of this phenomenon. I, I really feel like we're going to need a follow-up episode uh, in a few months and maybe with some others who are working in other, as you said, Undine, I think very powerfully there at the end. Um, it's going to be a, it's a global phenomenon. It's going to take global solutions and so I'd like to have some voices from other parts of the world as well. Thank you both for your Thank time. Thank you. Today. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Thanks. <laughs>